Hello and welcome to The Blueprint by Ballymore, the podcast that looks at how we can build better cities, speaking to urban innovators from around the world. I'm your host, journalist and broadcaster Jonathan Openshaw, and in this episode we'll be looking at the pretty seismic shifts that are taking place in our working lives, with a move towards flexible working now defining how we approach office space. The way we design our offices has always said a huge amount about our society, from the early mechanical counting houses of the Industrial Revolution to the neat little cubicles of 20th century capitalism and the expansive, airy, open-plan spaces that came to dominate the digital age. But the last decade has seen a move towards more flexible lifestyles, where the line between business and leisure became less defined and remote work was on the rise, leading many to question what exactly we still need from a physical office in the first place. These trends were well underway before the global COVID-19 pandemic, but in recent months the lockdown has kicked them into hyperdrive. Now, no one can truly say with authority what the future holds right now, but some are calling for a kind of hub-and-spoke model in office design, where we still have quality central spaces for certain tasks, but much better develop remote spaces in our homes and communities for the bulk of daily work. In this episode, we'll be looking at the future of work and asking whether we're actually about to go through a workplace renaissance where our professional lives can finally become more in sync with our personal lives. Leading workplace commentator Julia Hobsbawm sees 2020 as an opportunity to rethink the whole structure of our professional lives. I do welcome the conversations that we're all beginning to have much more frankly about what is the worker what is the workplace and what is the role of technology in that? I spoke to Head of Workplace Strategy and Design at KKS Savills, Katrina kostik Seyman, about why we'll continue to need centralised offices at all. It's very hard to completely take on board the culture of an organisation if everybody's remote. Human relationships have to be fostered in order to make those long-term relationships. And I asked Katrin Valchek, Head of Research and Design at Universal Design Studio, who worked on the interior spaces at Mill Harbour, how the new development taps into this shift towards a more flexible working future. You can work somewhere else than in your in your apartment and you might bump into your neighbours and um, it's, a, it's a space that you can take ownership of that feels different from your home, that, that gives you a different perspective, a different connection with the outside world. With any discussion of the workplace in 2020, it's impossible not to get drawn into the vortex that is the coronavirus lockdown, furlough and the sudden transition to enforced home working. But it's easy to forget that the underlying trends were pointing in the direction of more flexible offices years or even decades before this extraordinary moment that we're now living through. Looking at the stats from last year say it all, 92% of millennials identified flexibility as a top priority when job hunting, while 30% of all workers said that they'd take flexibility over a pay rise. On the flip side, having a communal space to come together, be creative and have serendipitous encounters with colleagues feels more urgent than it's ever been, and the idea of a life lived behind Zoom screens is starting to feel like some terrible dystopian nightmare for many of us. To help untangle these apparent paradoxes in our professional lives, I spoke to leading author and commentator Julia Hobsbawm, who is also visiting Professor of Workplace Social Health at the Cass Business School, and started off by asking her how technology has driven these shifts in recent years. Well, I think we've been drinking a lot of technological Kool-Aid for about 
15 to 20 years. And it seems odd to say that in the middle of the COVID crisis when technology has saved our working bacon and we are working now via technology. And so in a sense, the tech lash that began to come in towards 2019 um, has dissipated. But that's not to say that the dissatisfactions with technology and its impact and work aren't real. And I suppose my main charge against technology in the world of work is I'm not sure it makes people more productive or, or more happy at work. So that kind of hints towards this idea of social health um, that you developed in your influential 2018 book, Fully Connected, uh, looking at the costs, the social costs that come from our always-on culture. Could you say a little bit more about social health and do you think that it's actually gaining importance today? I, I coined the phrase social health to articulate both the problems and solutions of the connected always-on era and that in the same way that we manage our physical and our mental health quite simply the world over to say it all hinges ultimately, um, if you exclude disease, which we're dealing with, um, but prevention hinges very much on three factors the world over, which is nutrition, exercise and sleep. I would say that the three ingredients to social health, to good connected behaviour that's functional, is whether we have the right kinds of knowledge Um, healthy networks and the balance of time. In other words, if you are online, whether you're gaming or on email, constantly without a break, your social health, your mental health and your physical health are all suffering. I think even before coronavirus, we were seeing a tipping point where there was what you could call tech clash, dissatisfaction with people being tethered to their devices, especially at work. You know, there is something ridiculous about taking something that connects to the internet to go into a place where there are colleagues and not to speak to the colleagues and be social, but to go online often with them, you know, somebody standing or sitting next to you. And so what I think the quarantine moment that we're in has forced us to do is say, okay, well, where do we as workers need to use technology because we can't or shouldn't be around other people and where do we need to be around other people in which case what are we doing connecting to them via technology and so I think this has massive implications for the workplace and the culture of work. And on a practical level, what can we do here? I know you've talked um, a lot about the need for things like chief social health officers in companies uh, to oversee this kind of social well-being. What do you think we can be doing at all levels um, to help make this this transition a little easier? I think at at a macro level, you absolutely need, in the same way that you have a chief information officer, you need a chief social health. So you need somebody who bridges the gap between the board the HR function and people on the ground. And so I think at a, at a macro level, you want to have these big, big conversations, philosophical conversations about what are we feeling and what matters to us and what are our values. The corporates like to call this purpose. But, you know, that's a question that's not more, I suppose, in a way, it's about audit and consultation, simplifying. But at a micro level, it's very much... How can we do what we need to do as a business and as a workplace in in a way that allows people flexibility to design how they best like to work? So, for instance, at a micro level, 
If you're not asking people to come in and be present and to have the culture of presenteeism, which has dominated, then how do you monitor people's work and output and how do you actually get the best out of people? I mean, it is a completely different way of working. And I think that's why it feels so daunting for a lot of companies uh, to undertake these, you know, seemingly very complicated processes. I know your latest book, The Simplicity Principle, is actually trying to look for, you know, as the name suggests, simplicity in all this complication. Could you tell us more about the kind of dialectic there and why you wrote this book at this time? Our, our life is getting more complicated, not more simple. And yet people crave simplicity. You can see that in the trend towards mindfulness. You can see that in the trend towards minimalism. And so what I wanted to do was really say, well, what are the benefits of simplicity in the world of work? And actually, if you just focus on the desire to have people be productive and creative and engaged and not stressed and getting on with each other and doing good work, the requirements we all have are pretty simple, which is our work needs to be meaningful. We need to control our time and our deadlines. And we need to feel that we have high trust with the relationships that we have with the people that we work with. And once you start to distill it down to those simple aims, you can craft strategies that are much more workable than if you just say, oh, it's all the technology, you know, we'll have a town hall meeting, all 3,000 of us, and it's all going to be marvellous. That doesn't really solve our simple challenges and our simple desires. So finally, looking to the future of work, it does feel like there's a certain paradox um, that's developed between the, you know, the efficiency of technology, the fact that we realise we can get a lot of work done while working remotely, um, but also the fact that, you know, we're kind of really missing these centralised spaces. We're missing the physical, uh, you know, missing missing our colleagues, missing bouncing ideas around. How do you think we're going to kind of manage that, that seeming um, paradox? How can we work out those tensions in our working lives? Yeah, I'd call it a tension rather than a paradox. I think we already have what I call the blended self. You know, we have lives. We have even with the smartphone, which means that always on is 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 a real issue. We do have delineations. And so it's not the case that um, we we are at work all the time anyway. We're in our lives. I think that the 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 workplace of the future is going to be a much more sophisticated mix in the same way that houses have been designed over millennia and centuries. Homes have been designed to have a place where you cook and a place where you sleep and a place where you convene and a place where you play. I think the concept of where you work and when you work and who you work with is going to shift. And I don't think it's going to be fixed you know, the skyscraper is a pretty good image of, of, of 100 years of what was a fixed concept of the office. And I think that probably my my best guess is that we're going to return to something a bit like the coffee shop of the 18th century where people convene in clubs or or places to bring a real diversity of ideas rather than just your own office, your own colleagues. So I think there's going to be an enormous upset Um But we see upsets all the time in business and culture. And upset is where change happens and change on the whole is good. That was Julia Hobsbawm forecasting a new normal for the office of the future. Now, it's hard to say with any certainty what any industry will look like once the dust settles on the global pandemic. But the smart money would be on flexibility wherever possible. 
This was an underlying force in office space long before the pandemic, leading to the rise of providers like WeWork. Some of these flexible workspaces have been criticised for creating identikit experiences, however, and even before the coronavirus struck, there were rumblings of discontent about the type of space that these slick, often impersonal brands provide. More than just a facility, offices are a brand embassy of sorts, designed to articulate the exact values of a company to staff as well as to clients. Very often, the design of these office spaces says a huge amount about the company that they represent, whether that's zany play spaces of bean bags and ping pong tables, or sleek and sophisticated open plan floors of bare wood and soft lighting. Now, Katrina Kostik Seyman, head of workplace strategy and design at KKS Savills and immediate past president of British Council for Offices, knows all about the nuance of office space. So I wanted to get her thoughts on how we should conceive of offices today. I started off by asking her how we can separate out the underlying trends from the short-term shocks. There are many, many trends swirling around. Um, I think it's probably the safest to break it down into three sort of categories, short, medium and long term. I think there's the short term view of adapting your space quickly to get people back to the office uh, in a safe environment. And um, most of us probably know by now how to do that in terms of physical distancing and signage and sanitizing. The medium to long term, um, I think, is really what I'm interested in focusing on. The long term, very much um, around, you know, what does good look like? And what should the future be? Um, And things have changed completely dramatically. We hear a lot about the need to pivot, to be agile, to be flexible um, in business, you know, now more than ever. Do you think this is true of offices as well? Do we really need to kind of hard hard bake flexibility into the model? Um, I think for what we've been doing and advocating for the last 10, 15 years anyway, has been around flexible environments. And as an interior architect advising on developers, we make sure to future-proof what the occupier is looking for, to be able to downsize, upsize, uh, move around, change, change industry sectors. And what we've been doing is just Everything that's happened in post-COVID now has allowed it to accelerate. So there won't be any major shift for those people that are already on the agility and flexible journey. For those who really are, as you said, sort of fixed, top-down, want things the way they used to be, um, they will have a long way to go still. Um, But the world has changed and uh, agility and flexibility, I think it's important to, to also note that it's not just the bricks and mortar, it's about the people. And the people ultimately are about the culture and the brand of the organization they belong to and it's also to do with the HR policies and contractual issues as well so you talk about the agility and you talk about you know where people work uh, you talk about flexibility and it's about when do they work so I think historically it's fair to say that agility and flexibility haven't really been the calling cards for many office spaces you know even things uh, supposedly enlightened designs like open plan um, actually bulldoze a lot of nuance and force a particular type of work on all workers. Um, do you think that actually we're starting to understand the need for like truly flexible spaces and truly different modes of thinking and operating? Well, I think what you're describing is a one size fits all. And that was historically, probably in, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, sort of the, the, the mantra was that, you know, the senior person in charge would dictate, get number of X number of people in, and it would all be the same. Uh, you might just do a job differently. Um, we know that people work differently. We know that they do different jobs and that there are people that need to be uh, quiet and focused. And then we know that there are people that do like to move around and they're the rainmakers. They go out and and they get the business and they like to be uh 
part of what is going on. So we've done a big study on extroverts and introverts. And so you can boil it down absolutely to personality types. You can also boil it down to um, mental health attitudes in terms of inclusivity and um, and disabilities. And uh, you can break it into gender and culture and race. But ultimately, what it comes down to is that we're not all the same. And so I think the organization and the environments will allow us to cater for those things. It's not to say that I will do for one day always I want to sit on a sofa that whole day. It might be that I want to do partly quiet work and partly I want to sit at a desk and partly I want to be with other people. So it really does have to be about um, variety and choice. So honing in on the kind of quite extraordinary time that we're living through at the moment, um, is is all this discussion of how we can build better, more flexible offices, is it is it potentially kind of academic now? Because are we looking at a moment where potentially the centralised office is dead? Uh, No, the office is not dead and the centralised office is not dead. Uh, That's my firm belief. Uh, Centralised office uh, in the sense of what you might be describing as a headquarters or the brand is very important in order for people to feel belonging and the culture and the brand is where this will happen. So there will always be a need for some place to come together to reinforce exactly that culture. It's very hard to completely take on board the culture of an organization if everybody's remote. Uh, Human relationships have to be fostered in order to make those long-term relationships. And in order for you to communicate, you need to know who you're talking to. You can get so much out of people by just the nuance of bumping into them or going to do something that you thought you'd be doing, but then actually you start talking about something else or somebody else comes to join you or you're over here. So the centralized office is extremely important. Uh, The office is extremely important. Uh, Where you do the work and how you do the work is really what we're talking about now. So could you imagine a kind of hub and spoke model developing for businesses then where you've got these kind of centralized, very carefully conceived of um, spaces for people to come together, but maybe then much better integrated remote spaces, whether that's in people's homes or whether they're kind of neighborhood spaces. Um, that so, so it becomes a kind of networked um, office where there is that centralized brand hub, but then you're connected to lots of different areas that allow people to work remotely and flexibly if that's needed. I think the idea of the third space is something that we've been exploring for quite a while. Um, I'm not sure yet exactly what that will become, but I do know that the remote working uh, has happened now and people love it. And all of the statistics that we've been doing, we did a a very large sample survey of 65,000 recipients uh, in April, and our data is published uh, at early part of June. And it suggests... uh, Different trends for different industries, but as an average, uh, two to three days a week is what people would like to work from home or or work remotely, which by default suggests that two to three days a week in something called the centralized office. So those are the third spaces I'm talking about. They're not remote or fringe offices of a corporation that rents X amount of space and becomes their second brand. It's about allowing people perhaps to have a membership that says a drop-in, I can do this and meet these kind of people, or I can go to the gym, but I can also do some work, or I could spend the day here, um, it's sort of like a complimentary spa day that you have a day pass to somewhere. And that means that you can separate home, you don't have to travel to the city, which is really the reason people are uh, reluctant to travel. One is safety and one is time of commute. But if you then 
take that away, you also have these third spaces that would allow you to meet with people or be independent or be healthy or just take a walk. And I would love to see um, how we could repurpose a lot of spaces and buildings and odd areas that are not being used anymore and create these wonderful, vibrant places on the high street. I think that would be fantastic to support local um shops and local produce and, and local vendors and just get everybody out walking again but talking to people and being human as far as the office environment i think it's a wonderful creative time we're going to be talking about natural materials we're talking about sustainability and health and well-being there's going to be an understanding and recognition of volume and space and division and it won't be one large open expanse but it will be lots of wonderful neighborhoods we're talking about enriching the environment with color and texture and experience it will be about the employee experience and i think there's an opportunity for people's own personalities to shine and i'm really excited about the future that was katrina caustic Seyman, head of workplace strategy and design at kks savills talking about a refreshingly bright future for centralized offices Now, one of the key innovations at Mill Harbour is this focus on communal areas that blend different workplace functions with key hospitality services like cafes and bars. They've been created by Universal Design Studio, the agency founded by legendary design duo Edward Barber and Jay Osgaby to create human-centric architectural interiors. Universal has created a range of innovative workspaces over the last 20 years, including revolutionary co-working lobbies for Ace Hotel and ambitious remodelings for the office group. At Mill Harbour, they were tasked with transforming the role of the entrance areas to create community hubs for the buildings, encouraging people to spend time outside of their private apartments, but still in the comfort of their own extended home. To understand more about the approach here, I spoke to Katrin Valchek, Head of Research Design at Universal, about how the new Mill Harbour spaces respond to long-standing social shifts. Well, if you look at what offices used to look like maybe 20 years ago, that's experienced a huge shift and offices look a lot more like clubs or hotels or basically like hospitality spaces and all these elements that you use to craft a comfortable space have now been injected into into workspaces and, and for really good reason because people need to feel comfortable and happy where they work. So it's, yes, it's a choice of materials, it's a choice of furniture, it's um, creating different light levels. This is exactly our philosophy for workspaces and has been for a long time. And I think that's reflecting a shift that um, we've seen in the world of work itself, where companies have really had to make an effort to retain talent, to attract and retain talent. And the well-being of their staff, of their workforce, is, is seen as an asset. So how do you create this well-being and how do you um, make sure that people are their most creative, their most productive, their, their happiest self so that they, they are actually uh, motivated to do great work. So um, in our workspace projects, we've always tried to design a menu of spaces for people to choose from. So can we talk a bit more about some of these projects then? Um, I know your work with Ace Hotel is often credited as um, kind of ushering in a new era on how we can combine work and leisure spaces. Can you say a little bit more about the the work that Universal has done in this area? Well, um, first of all, you have to 
realized that actually the the first Ace Hotel in New York, you could describe their lobby as the mother of all co-working spaces because it was unheard of that you could go and take your laptop and get a coffee and just sit in a hotel lobby and work away. So Ace have really developed a new typology there where by being very generous with their space and said, okay, as long as you, you know, you drink a coffee and you create you create this atmosphere here, this vibe, because people wanted to go there, they've realized that um, that creates, creates a positive connection with a community and that um, becomes a, a differentiating factor. When they um, worked on Ace Hotel in London, they really wanted to um, replicate this idea of being embedded into the community. So um, it was really fantastic working with the ACE team because they were really dedicated to establishing local partnerships with local artists, creatives, makers, and bringing the local community on board from the beginning, from the onset of the project. So that was very much part of the success of um, the ACE Hotel lobby. But then also, I think, in the way the spaces are, are crafted and interwoven is also like some of its success because they are, it's not one big open space. It's actually a series of rooms that have each a distinct quality. So you've got the more transient spaces as you come in and then you can move deeper and deeper into the plan and it becomes more intimate and more cozy and changes um, the seating changes a little bit so it becomes a bit more comfortable um, and then there's obviously the the big co-working table in the in the front which um, is really nice to see how it transforms throughout the day so you you go there in the morning and it's packed with people on their on their um, laptops and then slowly slowly in the late afternoon um, the laptops gets cha get changed um, for drinks and then at some point there are more drinks on the table than laptops and the last laptop just goes away because you feel a bit like oh god everyone is just relaxing I, I, I feel awkward working here so it's a, a simple piece of furniture but it's really transformative and um, flexible in its use. So looking to Mill Harbour now how have all these different learnings from over the years been applied uh, to the actual spaces there? When we started working on Mill Harbour, the, the, the key question was how do you create a community from scratch? The key for establishing that um, was really working into these shared amenity spaces and creating these, I don't know, I would almost call them communal porches, so somewhere where people can actually meet their neighbours. So you, you bring people together in spaces that are not not public because not anyone can go there but but they're shared between the inhabitants of of the buildings and um where we also have the the home offices so um bringing back this idea that you can work somewhere else than in your in your apartment um and you might bump into your neighbors and um it's a it's a space that you can take ownership of um that feels different from your home that that gives you a different perspective, a different connection with the outside world. It's all inviting and open and you can also perch and, and sit and, and have your laptop there. And then there's there are more cosy areas, there are uh, shared working tables. Um, we wanted to have one nice 
table in, in each space that becomes a focal point. So you don't have three different large tables, but it's really one main table where, where people can come together around. Uh, we do have the, the phone booth or, or private booth where you can work. Um, there's a little uh, snug as well with a, that has more of a library feel. And then there's a cafe adjacent to it as well. So you can go and get a cup of coffee um, and the cafe is public, obviously. So there's where it, it merges again with the public and, and you get that connection back into the outside world. That was Katrin Valchek, Head of Research Design at Universal Design Studio, talking about the innovative new workspaces at Mill Harbour. And that's also all we have time for in this week's look at the future of work, from flexible digital connection to centralised brand embassies. We'll be back next week with a global deep dive on green design, travelling from Singapore to Shanghai in our search of sustainable solutions. If you want to hear more about urban innovation, please do like and subscribe to the podcast on your provider. And of course, we would love it if you shared the series with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find out more details about all of our episodes and about Ballymore's new development at Mill Harbour itself in the show notes that accompany this episode. I've been your host, Jonathan Openshaw, and thanks again for tuning in.